Uh, so the smart city conversation is inherently cross-disciplinary. Um, it touches, the topic touches on basically every hot button issue um, related to technology, um, both in practice and in theory. It's surveillance capitalism, it's the future of democracy, it's AI power, neoliberalism, climate change, inequality, transformation of work, and so on. Um, and, and in the US, and from what I can gather in Canada as well, there's also um, the issue of federal and state preemption, or provincial preemption here, of local authority. Even within the law, the thinking about smart city norms is very interdisciplinary. It essentially involves human rights, criminal justice, development and project financing, local government law, IP law, tech policy, which is my discipline, um, and environmental law. And then, of course, outside of the law, we've got geographers and economists and urbanists, computer science, STS, um, uh, humanities, I'm sure, although I'm less familiar with that. Um, and because smart city implementations so clearly intersect with concerns on the ground, uh, civil society groups and active citizens are constantly feeding back in, into the theory um, about the interplay between uh, data and urban life. One of the reasons the topic is so cross-disciplinary is that the smart city concept is itself so elastic. It can mean anything, and people who study this area, um, I have to say, are utterly obsessed with the definition of smart city. Um, so the definition sections of papers and on smart cities, they're not just a couple sentences or even a paragraph, um, but they're often a page or two. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is because um, there's a certain shame some scholars feel about the term smart cities. Uh, and I think that's because um, it, its origin, like the term big data, uh, is it, it started life as a marketing term. Um, IBM trademarked smarter cities. It couldn't get smart cities, um, but it trademarked smarter cities, and it has a whole suite of smart um, services. Um, I'm not ashamed. I think it's a useful term, um, although you know I acknowledge that it, it's uh, semiotic agility. Most definitions, and here I'm just giving you two, um, include two basic components, that there is a deployment of information technology to improve some function of the city. Um, it's usually about optimizing for efficiency with a, a minor in sustainability. Um, the ITU definition on the left um, is, is probably more typical, and it's certainly you know, among the earlier ones. It focuses on public deployment um, with the city itself as the subject. So the smart city are, it's, is the city doing things um, to make uh, itself and life in the city smart. Um, Evgeny Morozov and Francesca Bria have a new paper out, um, and they refer to the city as the object. Um, some deployments may be core governmental functions, as in criminal justice, or they may be private services, as in Uber. So they are encompassing these private deployments as smart city deployments. And I prefer their definition um, because one of the hallmarks of smart city deployments uh, is that they integrate public and private technologies. And so Uber, for example, um, becomes part of the public transport solution through data integration um, or a data portal. Uh, and also the Uber data becomes, if the city can get its hands on it, um, becomes part of city transport planning.
So like I said, um, you know, the origin of, of smarter cities um, was in the, is in the private sector. Uh, and so uh, you started with um, sort of in the early 2000s is when the, uh, I'm sorry, the early uh, 210s. Um, 2010s is when we started hearing about um, investments of particularly companies Cisco, uh, IBM, and Microsoft in big tech infrastructure companies. And the ones that made the most splash were sort of the greenfield projects like Sangdo in um, South Korea. And that's why Sidewalk Labs here in Toronto is making so much waves because it's unusual, um, certainly in the, in the West, um, more common in the global South and in Asia to have absolutely new cities that are these smart city um, uh, constructions. So, so this um, Cisco Kinetic for Cities um, is sort of Cisco's platform product um, for cities, and I'll, I'll um, summarize kind of what they say here because it's hard to read. Um, Cisco's former chief globalization officer, um, they had such a thing, Casper um, Hertzberg, um, wrote a book, 2017, about Cisco's experience in getting Sangdo off the ground. They eventually pulled out of that project, and it's interesting the reasons why. There was some resistance to the sort of totalizing um, concept that they had in mind. Um, and so, you know, if you're if you're interested in in the view from Cisco's perspective, that's that's worth looking at. Um, it's called Smart Cities, Digital Nations. Kinetic for Cities um, used to be called uh, the Smart and Connected Digital Platform, and what it really is is an API for the city. So, what they describe on the left um, is a vignette of a, of a woman going for an early morning run. Uh, she gets up, she laces up, she checks her smartphone, it tells her whether she has to be worried about air quality. Um, uh, she, as she moves through the city, the street, smart street lights come on for her. Um, she feels safe, it says, crossing through a dark park because of video surveillance that's analyzing behavior. Um, you know, implicitly, it doesn't say this, but so why would she feel safe? Because there's either deterrence going on or there's intervention happening. Um, on her route, she sees trucks tracing weird patterns to pick up trash only where needed, um, saving time and presumably saving fuel and street capacity. Then on the right, we have what Cisco describes as the benefits. Um, so first it says, you know, capturing and transforming disparate data insights. So this is about collection, aggregation, and use of data. Second point, um, uh, so, so, you know, it's selling, this is a, this is a product that it's trying to sell cities. Um, it also has a product, a private product, um, also called uh, uh, Kinetic. Uh, customize and grow based on uni unique goals with inclusion of new solutions. So that is sort of Cisco speak for a platform on which city and third parties um, can build new apps, uh, sort of making the platform both more useful and more sticky. Learn from the city data. So that's their, their, there's your AI, right? They're talking about machine learning from this massive amounts of, of data that's collected. And then, you know, I think most strikingly and sort of, um, you know, unabashed at the very bottom, it says, cash in on the value of data with an urban service marketplace. Okay, so this is, um, I think what Jason Jackson was talking about, you know, this is the collapse of the state and the marketplace sort of visions of what the city is here to do. Um, so the state is going to, in this case the city, 
um, facilitate the market, the monetization of data, the datafication of life. Uh, and the smart city discourse is, um, and the open data discourse, I should say, which sort of is larger and, and preceded the smart city discourse, um, is, is a lot about this. It's a lot about um, sort of spinning public data, city data into gold and creating these marketplaces for innovation. Um, don't worry, I'm not going to go through all of this, but um, this gives you a sense of kind of the range of smart city um, applications. Um, and, you know, the, the, this, the sidewalk proposal for Portland kind of covers all of these. Most smart city implementations will be incremental and will be one or two of these in phases. Um, they, some of these are really just intensifications of you know, 20th century urban governance innovations. Um, they are actuarial, data-driven decision-making. They involve um, P3s, public-private partnerships. Um, you know, predictive policing algorithms, which have come up a lot in this, um, in this workshop, have garnered a lot of attention. Um, in some sense, they're pretty mild um, smart city interventions because um, they're, they're really um, different by degree but not in kind from the kind of actuarial predictive policing that's been going on at least since the mid-90s with um, uh, the Comstat system in, in New York City. Um, you know, they, they can become different when there's no human in the loop and they're sort of more fully automated. But I think other kinds of smart city implementations um, present very new uh, conceptual challenges. For example, many smart city ap um, applications rely on sensors and ubiquitous sensors, whether that's um, uh, for waste. Uh, so Sidewalk Labs is proposing sensors at the point of disposal, um, you know, where in your household, where you put your trash, um, as well as in the public realm on, on bins um, for uh, for, for health applications, these sensors in the waste stream can help identify um, disease and uh, drug use hotspots. So obviously, um, there are some health, public health benefits to that. There are a lot of privacy concerns. Um, so this is a degree of surveillance, of ubiquitous and sort of penetrating surveillance that really is a difference in kind from, from what uh, cities have had in the past. Then there is, what's also different is the data integration um, and the use of big data. Cities have always had a ton of data and one of the pitches to cities, uh, the smart city pitch, is make put your data to, to use, become a platform for innovation. Um, this is the cash in pitch. Um, so, so they've always had a lot of data, but, but what smart cities require is a kind of data integration that cities have been very poor at. Doing. So if you think about a patient management system, which is part of the, smart, uh, the Sidewalk Labs um, proposal and, and is common in smart cities um, uh, conceptions, you know, it's, it's got to use, uh, or it might use, um, social media data, wearable data, um, educational data, uh, et cetera, to structure choices and to manage care. Um, and by the way, in ways that um, cannot be explained. Um, so, uh, you know, and I, I, I think I should have said at the beginning that um, many of us who do tech criticism um, 
often fall into, I think, a pitfall of being very dystopic. Um, it's sort of as a way to like prove our critical bona fides. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and I myself do this a lot. And you know, so I should caveat, um, there is a ton of good um, that these technologies can do. Uh, and I'll just give one example. Um, so, you know, we talk about um, sentencing algorithms. Um, you know, we who talk about this tend to be very down on them and focus on um, uh, the potential fairness pitfalls, um, you know, from a progressive perspective, but there is a huge progressive win that sentencing, um, uh, I'm sorry, this I should say, not sentencing, um, pretrial uh, risk algorithms. Um, they have allowed jurisdictions to get rid of cash bail. So in the state that I work in, New Jersey, there's no longer cash bail, um, which of all the unfair parts of our criminal justice system, they are a big one. And so, you know, I just, I just put that out there. So now I'll go back to being negative. Um, no, before I do that, one more, one positive example. So, you know, there's this specter of Big Brother, unexplainable, integrated data managing our health Healthcare, and I know, especially in Canada, where you've got good healthcare, um, that's been a that's been a sore spot in the. Um, I mean, that has been seen as a real overreach for Sidewalk Labs um, in Los Angeles. You know, they are integrating homelessness data, census information, um, trauma data, eviction data, uh, rent burden data, and. Econ data about economic stagnation, I don't even know what that data is, um, in order to target their interventions on homelessness, right? So I don't know how it's working out, but this is you know, sort of a promising application. Um, okay, and then you know, one last thing I'll just you know, pull out of here um, as a kind of highlight of about how this is different is of course all of these smart, many of these smart city applications um, are made possible by the Internet of Things. Um, that have actuators in them. So in, in Anton's parlance, you know, there is no doubt that these are agents, right? They are definitely um, acting. They are, they are, uh, their behavior will adjust automatically, you know, whether we're talking about AVs, obviously, um, or, you know, even park benches um, or water supply. Uh, they will perform a kind of automated governance, um, either perhaps you know, responsively to uh, immediate inputs, like you've already sat on this bench for too long, it's now time for somebody else, you know, we're closing up the bench for you. Um, uh, I'm not making that up, that's something that's been considered. Um, or as a matter of anticipatory governance, sort of making predictions about um, uh, behaviors that it should respond to. Okay, so this comes from um, uh, McKinsey, which is um, based on a study of 50 cities, and I, I know you can't really read that, but this is kind of its um, distribution, where it thinks cities are on the smart city um, spectrum, and um, I think Toronto is right smack in the middle, um, and then you've got uh, Abu Dhabi and Singapore way out in the advanced category. Um, and you know what it's what's capturing um, is that you know there's a certain amount of basic infrastructure that you need to implement these systems and the infrastructure you've got to have um, uh, be able to generate and capture all of this data. Um, you've got to be able to analyze um, these enormous volumes of data in complex systems. Um, you've got to have 
you know, smartphone penetration. So that's why, you know, India is, is although it has huge ambitions in the smart city domain, it's, it's why it's, it's behind. Um, you have to have robust communications networks. And so, um, you know, we're talking broadband and low power wide area networks for the internet of things. And this is why 5G is so, um, is so critical. Um, and you've got to be able to convert data into standardized, shareable formats, which if you know anything about city governance is a huge, is a huge challenge. I mean, cities, um, you know, are still using paper. They're using PDFs. Um, uh, and so those, that's sort of the basic um, infrastructure that's necessary. So I think, but what this um, scattergraph does not capture, which I think is really normative, I'm sorry, interesting, and um, I think it ties into what Jason was talking about, about sort of the moral embeddedness of AI, is that, um, you know, cities have really different views of, uh, you know, the moral valence of smart cities. Um, and so, you know, just to give you an anecdote about this, I was at the Smart City Expo in Barcelona in November of last year, and there were, it was very striking, there were two really different kinds of attitudes and displays. Um, so you could go into um, the, the, you know, Ch China and Huawei were hugely represented, um, um, Dubai, uh, Russia, and you go into their pavilions um, and they're absolutely celebratory, they're giddy. Um, and they show you the central control room and they show you the social score and they show you the analysis of um, um, facial expressions and it's a real sort of God's eye view on the city and how they go are going to enact um, control, efficiency, security. Um, and then you go into the European, and by the way, the North Americans, neither Canada nor um, the US were well, well represented at the Smart City Expo. Um, very kind of shoddy little um, displays. Um, but the Europeans were well represented and, um, and you know, they were, um, uh, you know, I, I would almost say self-conscious um, and shy and conspicuously reassuring about uh, data protection and sort of, you know, very kind of modest um, goals that were as much about sustainability and equity as they were about um, security. Okay, so, um, and I should say this talk is in two parts. This first part is really just sort of surveying the landscape um, and uh, as well as the kind of ethical norms that we see developing. And then the second part will be um, uh, my attempt to extract from this some high-level um, governance principles. It's very difficult to um, come up with kind of an, a consensus view on what the um, ethics should be around smart cities, in part because smarts implicate everything, right? So we're talking really about everything that happens um, in a place. Uh, and I'll just address um, a couple of these. So, you know, if you really wanted a comprehensive view of the ethics of smart cities, you'd have to consider, well, what are the ethics of public-private partnerships and sort of the neoliberal project in, um, in cities? Um, you know, cities have been stripped down by austerity measures, um, decades-long project of um, sort of disempowering cities. And so as a res and at the same time, they are facing, you know, their biggest challenges, especially with migration and climate change um, and, and the changing nature of work uh, in the economy. So it's not surprising that when technology companies come to them and say that we can solve your problems, um, uh, 
whether that's Compass or Palantir or Cisco or Sidewalk or Streetlight or Lyft, um, it's, very, it's very seductive. At the same time, cities are trying to compete for um, global capital and innovation, and, um, and the biggest ones you know, are really in the hunt to be global cities. So this is part of, you know, I think what Anton talked about um, and what Jason talked about is it's part of a winner-take-all sort of movement, and so cities are part of that too. Um, and so they are very um, susceptible to language, uh, the language of tech, like sandbox and hacks and demos and disruption. And um, that sounds both, it, it, first of all, they need it. Second of all, it sounds like it will help them to attract the capital and the talent um, and um, uh, sort of the, the, the admiration um, of the world. Second, um, second point here about privacy and autonomy, um, you know, we've, we know, everybody knows, I think it's, it's pretty self-evident what the privacy um, and autonomy issues are, and they're the same ones that we have with information platforms, except that in the city context, they're magnified in part because there really is no exit. Um, this is, you know, where people live and they, um, uh, and, and opt out um, as hard as it is in, in the information space, it's even harder um, in the city space. Um, and, and, the, and the degree to which um, sensors sort of magnify uh, the, the intimacy of the data that is collected and the amount of data that is collected, um, you know, I think make um, the privacy questions just sort of uh, sharper in a smart city context. Uh, the third point, which is the last point I'll address here, um, is about sort of, you know, the power of, of the state, um, which is implicated here in a way that um, it, it, isn't it isn't always in when we're talking about information platforms. Um, so because smart city tech interfaces with the police power, and here I'm not, I'm, I'm using it as, as a legal term of art to mean not just the police, but um, the power of the city to ensure health and safety, um, smart city applications um, can be about anticipatory regulation, not in a metaphorical sense, but in an actual sense. Um, actual regulation can be personalized and automatically enforced. And so, you know, when Kyle was talking about um, AVs and assignment of liability, you know, you could imagine that not going through the courts at all, right? You could imagine just there being a collision and the AI figures out, you know, how to apportion blame um, or responsibility. And, you know, to the extent we're talking about a penalty, it just makes the, it just makes the shift, um, the payment um, through your accounts. Um, so this is, um, um, this obviously implicates, you know, due process concerns and fairness concerns, um, and and you know the downside may be a real reduction uh, in freedom, and 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 making also a reduction in the possibilities of course correction or sort of rethinking path dependencies. Um, so I'll leave the rest of these, um, but I just to just to give just to prove um, that they are real. All of these are real issues for cities. Um, and are in play. I just wanted to read you the list of issues being considered by my city, um, Philadelphia. It's a smart city committee that I'm sitting on um, to give you a sense of the scope. 
Socioeconomic inequality, digital revolution, international upheaval and migration, mobility as a service, workforce automation, transportation technology deployment, climate change, social and political dysfunction, shifting demographics, technocracy, updating infrastructure, low density divestment, so by this, um, you know, they mean um, sort of DNXing um, parts of the city where there's, where there's low density, which is a trend at least um, in a, among American cities. Um, greater Philadelphia and global economy, housing shortage, delivery on dema demand, end of bricks and mortar retail. Okay, so no smart city code of ethics can deal with all of that, so they're all necessarily um, partial. Uh, so let me just give you a sense of, and there are more than this, but these are some of the leading sort of emerging ethical codes um, that we've seen. The first efforts focused on um, the technical systems themselves uh, and identified privacy and security concerns. Um, so Rob Kitchen, who's a, a geographer at uh, Maynooth University in Ireland, and Lillian Edwards, um, who's a legal scholar at Strathclyde in Scotland, um, were early onto this, and they um, have applied sort of the privacy law scholarship in the smart city context. So it's very much GDPR concepts and fair, fair information practices concepts. Um, and then legal scholars, um, uh, especially Scott Pepit, uh, emphasized security aspects. So this is about, you know, IOT security and making sure that the city is not, or, or um, functions in the city are not um, hacked. The second wave um, of smart city ethical codes, and so by second wave, I'm really talking about in the last two years, um, have shifted, I think, they, they include all the privacy and security stuff, but they've expanded out from that, um, uh, and, and also their, their locus has shifted from, you know, purely the academic realm um, to include cities and sort of communities of practice activists. Um, and so they are addressing sort of forms of industrial organization. Um, the Bass Declaration, which was um, uh, 2016, I think, um, it, which was adopted at the European Conference on Sustainable Cities is focused on sustainability. Um, and, but in it, 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 its declaration, it addressed technological transformation and um, oh, in this regard, urged cities to address the digital divide um, support open data and access to data. And then sharing cities, um, which is, I can't quite figure out what it is. It's, it's EU funded, it includes um, cities, but also industry and civil society groups, and it's um, chaired by the City of London. So um, you tell me what that is. Um, but anyway, um, they, they address, um, they do have some really interesting ideas and they sort of are focusing on the top layer, on the models um, that are built on top of the city as a platform. Um, and really, you know, I think interestingly proposes to kind of revive a collaborative model um, so that cities uh, are not beholden to Airbnb and, and, um, and Uber, but instead, you know, begin to nurture sort of peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. Uh, okay, so that's what we see out there um, so far. Now, I'll give you some of my ideas. Um, how can we begin to produce a normative mapping for smart cities that is sufficiently inclusive, 
um, but has some definition, doesn't, doesn't you know, cover all of these um, domains. And so my first attempt at this was to think about data as infrastructure, and that's probably because I come from a telecom law um, background. And so if, if data is, infra is infrastructure, it's then natural to think of that infrastructure using a layered model like we do for the internet. And um, with apologies to Jason and other um, computer scientists, it's, it, we in law use a very simplified um, model. Um, but I think it, it, it pretty much, um, uh, it has some of that same DNA. Um, so we've got kind of physical hardware at the bottom, and then we've got logical systems, and then we've got applications at the top. This is, um, Sidewalk Labs is thinking along the same lines. So this is, uh, you'll be familiar with this from um, the beautiful, beautiful graphics that Sidewalk Labs um, has prepared for its proposal um, at um, Keyside in Toronto. So what it's got is, uh, it's got this bottom layer, which is kind of itself um, four layers where it's got you know, physical infrastructure and then it's kind of got the built environment on top of that. Um, it's divided it into public realm, which is parks and streets and curbside. Um, and then the buildings on top of that with kind of mobility circulating in there. But then, you know, the innovative, um, concept for Sidewalk Labs is that you've got this digital layer. And the digital layer sort of sits above everything, but it also interpenetrates through um, with its sensors, um, with its API, with its portal, with cloud, with the data analytics. Um, okay, I think I want to go back here. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you focus on data flows or the really the digital layer here is being the kind of central smart city um, infrastructure. Uh, if that's the, the principal object of your ethical concern, then it's, you're, you will focus on data governance as your intervention. Um, and you know, I think what we've seen so far with the Sidewalk Labs project is that this is where it's gone, right? It's that if you're concerned about um, the digital layer, really what you're concerned about are data flows, so we'll fix that, right? And so Sidewalk Labs has proposed this civic data trust, which I won't go into the details, but it's a way to kind of manage, um, it's a way to manage data. And I think the danger of that um, is that it, it it's sort of, it's built on an assumption that the data gathering is gonna happen um, and that the system is going to be based on indiscriminate, ubiquitous, and redundant data gathering. Um, and so really what we need to work on is this second part is this data governance about who gets access to it and how is privacy um, protected. Um, and, um, uh, and we never really question kind of what's the bigger picture and what are the bigger uh, dynamics, the winners and losers, um, and the, you know, the vision for life in the city. Um, I think I'm not, I think what maybe, let's see, what time is it? Well, let me, I guess we do have time. I'll, I, I'll say just a couple things about, um, about data governance. Um, on data gathering, I think we need sort of new governance regimes, and this is not part of the, um, re really covered by the 
the civic trust that Sidewalk Labs has proposed, um, that acknowledge that notice and choice don't work in the smart city context. Um, you know, how can renters consent to surveillance uh, through their nest um, that they didn't install? Um, how can they, how can anyone consent to surveillance through trash chutes where uh, censoring is required in order to get trash service? Um, for that matter, how can homeowners consent? So many of us thought we were resisting Alexa and then Amazon showed up in our homes anyway when it bought, um, this happened to me, when it bought the, rout, the router's Eero, right? So we thought we were free from Alexa and Amazon's in there now. Um, so consent I don't think really works and that is, you know, that still remains the bedrock of our sort of data governance um, frameworks. I also think we need to, to figure out how to deal with integrated data. So there's a um, sense I think still that uh, data licensing agreements have that you can kind of claw back data when you can apply use, use restrictions and then get it back and it just doesn't work that way once data has been integrated um, into, into sort of big data uh, systems. Um, and then finally on the data deployment point, um, this is probably you know what we've talked about most in this workshop. Um, is you know, how do we deal with the black box problem? So to the extent that more and more of our city services and um, uh, either public or private decisions that are happening in the city are being driven by algorithmic decision making, um, how can they be rendered uh, accessible through explanation or through other means? How do we deal with um, um, bias and uh, um, with due process? Okay, so like I said, um, I like the infrastructure analogy. Um, uh, you know, I think we can sort of see that we can have a handle on it, um, but unfortunately I don't think it's really capacious enough um, uh, to deal with these cross-cutting concerns um, that arise in the smart city context. So My second attempt at this, um, or my second iteration, is to move up a le level from, um, from the data flows to some of the other concerns. All right, so let's start with, um, and, and these are overlapping, privatization, domination, and platformization are sort of my three buckets. Um, let's start, and then they're, they're overlapping, uh, and they still don't cover everything, but I think um, that's the best I can do so far to kind of um, uh, be both expansive and challenging and yet, um, you know, be useful for, for theorists, interdisciplinary theorists and um, city practitioners themselves. All right, so first of all, um, let's talk about privatization. Um, it starts with, so the concerns here are that you privatize planning through the smart city project. Um, that's nowhere is that clearer than in the in the sidewalk labs project where um, sidewalk labs was uh, invited or, or won an RFP um, to be an innovation partner. I think they call it. Uh, I think Waterfront Toronto calls it a thinking partner. Uh, so um, this is really to design the city, uh, also to conduct procurement, also to be a vendor, also to be a landowner. Uh, it doesn't, even in cases where we're not talking about greenfield smart cities, there's a way in which 
smart city applications invite the private sector into fundamental planning decisions um, for the city. So um, Morozov calls this solutionism. Judith used the word uncomfortably, as I do too, problematization. Um, it's an ugly word. We need, to, we need to figure out something better than that. But so far, that's, that's the best we have, right? So finding, creating problems that really aren't the city's problems. Um, so there was, uh, I heard a, a city manager say, you know, um, a venture fund comes to me and says, we've got a great idea for street furniture in your city. We want to make an automated barista that's going to give you, you know, lattes in 30 seconds so you're not going to have all these lines at the coffee shops. And this city guy said, you know, that's just not a problem that I have. You know, I have other problems. Will you solve those? Um, you know, and unfortunately, those other problems, you know, for, until there is a venture-funded sort of play for those, they're not attractive. So, um, uh, so, so there's a tension about, you know, keeping, keeping planning um, public. Second area of privatization is data and IP. Where does the data live? Um, uh, you know, I think the default arrangements should be, should be that city data should live locally, um, unless there's some reason not to, unless the city can't secure it. Um, IP is a whole nother uh, kettle of fish, but I'll just say that it's it's a problem. So the private ownership of IP um, and uh, cities or the public, you know, maybe having licenses to use that IP, but it being limited, um, and the specter of sort of losing critical functionality in a city because the IP, um, whether it's patents or trademarks, I'm sorry, patents or copyright, or whether it's just trade secret, um, is, is vested in, in private hands. The same thing is true when you're dealing with algorithmic decision making. Um, you know, there, there is IP uh, in play there, and so you've got Palantir owning the algorithm for predictive policing, um, and police communities want to understand, you know, what is the thinking um, and the city can't provide it because it doesn't have access um, to, the, to the necessary data or, uh, or analytics. And, and by the way, for the law nerds, um, there's a Supreme Court case right now pending. Um, it's called Food Marketing Institute versus Argus Leader. Oral argument is on April 19th. And this is a case um, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but it's about freedom of information and um, exemptions for confidential information. Um, and if the court finds that, uh, uh, sort of upholds an expansive reading of what confidential information is, it will have um, pretty significant implications for the ability of the public to get any kind of explanation out of private algorithms because it will provide a lot of breathing room for claims that those are trade secrets. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I'm, let's talk about, um, I'm gonna skip this. Oh, yeah, I, I do wanna mention this. I, I wanna go on to regulation and enforcement, but this, um, you know, another way in which privatization works in the smart city is through the API. So most um, 
Sidewalk Labs, for example, talks about an open API. So that sounds like, okay, it's gonna be open, we're all gonna own it, right? And it doesn't really mean that. Um, it means you can build to it, um, and you can have third-party apps, but it's kind of like Android, right? So, so when Google wants to change Android, they can change Android. Um, and so one has to be worried about privately owned APIs in the city. And the reason I, I, I just wanted to mention this book by um, Stephen Goldsmith, who's at um, uh, Kennedy School, um, is that, you know, it very much, so, so the, this book is about a new operating system for the city and the basic idea is that we need to push decision making down to line workers, the social worker, the cop, you know, who's got the tablet and has access to all the data that may be necessary to make a decision about, you know, a, a child protective service or a policing um, decision. And, you know, it's totally dependent on there being an API and a data portal and sort of integrated data that this decision maker has access to. So there's kind of a synergy between sort of the new, you know, most progressive thinking about how to run cities um, and what the vendors, you know, and the vendors business. Um, and so that should make us even more nervous about um, the prospects for privatization. Okay, so, so governance, um, uh, and enforcement. I just want to use this one example um, because um, it comes from Toronto uh, and it's pretty fascinating. Um, so what, what, what Sidewalk Labs has proposed, um, their vision for the city, and again, this is also very consonant with kind of the best thinking in city planning, which is, um, Mixed use, we know mixed use is, is, um, has been hot for a long time. They want radical mixed use, right? So what radical mixed use looks like is you see the top um, little square is, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the top square is kind of traditional zoning, right? Where you've got uses segregated. And then the bottom square is, um, uh, is radical mixed use where you've got uh, uses our sep can be separated, you know, floor by floor within a building, or you know, even uh, unit by unit within a building. So you can have a welder um, on a floor next to a residence, you know, next to a school. Um, how does this work? Well, it only works with code and with data. So the idea is that um, uh, you've got so in the current system you have uses are separated to avoid conflicts. And the conflicts are caused by negative externalities, too much noise, too many emissions, too many kids, you know, whatever it is that is a, an annoyance. Um, and with an outcome-based uh, code system, you have conflicts managed by monitoring and guaranteed enforcement, right? So you can imagine the kind of sensor networks that, that are required to make this work. So the sensors pick up too much noise, too many emissions, um, too many pitter-patters of little feet, whatever it is. Um, and then there's guaranteed enforcement, not explained what that means, but you know that could be um, fines, right? So the most like benign um, understanding is that that's just gonna mean it's your automatic fine. Um, it could mean, you know, possibly since everything is going to be mediated by an app and the data portal that you can't get into, you know, that the locks don't work. Um, it's essentially, you know, uh, it's not even constructive eviction. It's automatic eviction. Maybe it's temporary. Um, and so, 
Um, you know, it's, they, they then, this comes, by the way, this is, um, you can't see, but it's taken from, it's taken from Sidewalk Labs' um, materials. And so when they talk about nuisance, um, they are suggesting that we can move from a very sort of messy liability system where you, you know, it's, you, you have to argue about what a nuisance is and it's case by case, um, to a kind of encoded, immediately enforced, um, by fine or other intervention um, system, right? So that is, it's an, it's an automation of law, of, of regulation and enforcement, but it's also possibly a privatization because although they say that the, of course the code, the standards will be determined pu publicly, right, by the public authorities, um, between the public proclamation, there is no public definition of nuisance, right? Nuisance is, you know, the right thing in the wrong place. Um, so you'll have to tell us, Jason. You know, I can imagine your students sitting in a room and saying, tell us what you want us to do, right? Tell us what the standard is. They're going to have to figure out what the standard is. So the, the vendor, the, the, the code maker, is going to have to encode nuisance. Okay, so going to the next one. Um, a lot of what I think are the concerns um, I am just uh, classifying as fears of domination. And I think um, there's a systemic aspect to this and there's the individual aspect to this. Um, the systemic aspect to this is that, um, you know, beyond obviously there's some overlap with the privatization, beyond the private domination of the public, um, there is a concern that there will be domination by a particular company or a couple particular companies that we will replicate in cities what we have in the information space. Um, and for the same reasons, um, that there are network effects, that there's winner take all, this is the nature of um, sort of data-based uh, uh, businesses. In the case of Sidewalk Labs, um, there's real reason to be concerned. Um, you know, it's probably you know at the far end of the spectrum in terms of the patient capital that it's willing to throw at this, and the ways in which, because of the way um, the agreement is structured, uh, the ways in which they will be able to prefer their own companies for procurement of the various pieces. Um, of the smart city deployment. So this is don't need to worry too much about the details here. But you've got you know sort of Alphabet has Google, which is responsible for I think like 99 or 98 percent of their revenue, and then they've got all these other what they call big bets. Um, and so the big bet companies are just patient capital looking for the next business. And Sidewalk Labs is just um, one of them. Nest is another. Waymo is another. Um, and then all these other companies are spawned or are like little baby sidewalks. So um, they've got Replica, which is a modeling um, company. They've got Cord, which is uh, transportation. City Block, which does health. Um, Intersection does marketing. They're responsible for the Link um, NYC kiosk. Uh, and so if you look at all the Sidewalk Lab um, documents and presentations, um, it's clear that all of these companies, they imagine that all these companies will have a piece of this. Um, and so, you know, there is a legitimate fear that um, uh, it won't just be privatized governance, but it will be um, Google governance. 
Another aspect of the sort of systemic domination, um, which I'm not going to have time to talk about, but which is kind of a, um, a shadow over all of these smart city deployments is security. Um, so these were just, you know, two well-publicized um, hacks. Uh, so the, the, the Jeep was, its navigation system was hacked into, um, it's taken over, uh, run into a ditch. The TrendNet was a baby monitor um, system which was hacked uh, and, and so uh, very easily, had almost no security. Um, and so the hackers could view into the, uh, into the baby's room. Um, so, you know, I view the security risk, the brittleness of these systems, the lack of security in the Internet of Things deployments um, as a piece of the concern about sort of systemic um, uh, domination. I, I guess be, just before we leave this, um, you know, I think the, on the individual side, um, a lot of this has to do with, um, with privacy. Um, you know, the, there is the constant surveillance and um, the chilling function the, that that uh, creates in terms of um, robust and free and autonomous living. Um, and then there's the choice architecture, which I think Judith may, may have touched on um, a little bit about, you know, nudges um, so that in a system of sort of ubiquitous sensing and automatic regulation. Um, there is, and in fact, one of the features of, um, uh, of these systems is that they can create a, a pro-social choice architecture so that you, your choices about healthcare, your choices about transportation, your choices about what you're throwing away and where to throw it, um, when you use the water, how, what your thermostat is set to, all of these choices start to be channeled and constrained um, in ways that, um, uh, that, that may be obvious and transparent and in ways that, that may not be. Okay, so this, um, the third bucket here is, you know, platformization, another ugly word. Um, uh, and, and in some ways, I think, the hardest to grapple with, the one that requires the most new thinking, um, the one that is probably newest. Uh, so let me go through this by, by using Sidewalk Labs as, um, as my example in its language. Um, what they want to do is create networked neighborhoods. Um, operating at a system scale like the internet, generating advantages that increase with each new node. All right, so you know we don't even have to probe this too much to just immediately see that this is the internet, right? This is the internet in the city, um, and so we should assume that the same problems we know exist with internet networks are going to um, to. to uh, uh, the smart city application of this architecture is going to raise the same um, questions. So what are the network effects? Is it going to produce a winner-take-all um, result? Is there space for alternative visions and opt-out, right? So we know how hard that is. Even if you're not a Facebook user, um, you are subjected, right, to Facebook surveillance. Will the same thing be true in the smart city if there are... Um, uh, choices you want to make not to be sensed, not to have wearables, um, uh, not to be surveilled, will, will those be possible? Um, and, and if they are, will they be meaningful? 
Um, what, what is the role of non-commercial institutions? Uh, so if you look at the architecture that Sidewalk Labs um, envisions, and this is not just, you know, this is generally true in smart cities. As it is on the internet, there is a flattening, right? There is, um, the internet doesn't know if you're a dog. The smart, these smart city applications, the, the platformization doesn't really care who you are in the system. You all, and also whether you're public or private, whether you're non-commercial or commercial, um, you are all just end users of a system. Um, and so that's a kind of architectural choice that we have to be comfortable with. And I think here, you know, in the same way that we've all learned, you know, that, that you know, Mark Zuckerberg has had to confess that they are a media company and not just a tech platform, that these are normative choices that are being made, that they are not just neutral um, affordances. The same thing is true here, right? So this architecture is not neutral. Um, doesn't mean it's bad, but it means that you know we we, we better grapple with what it's going to mean. Okay, um, and so what are its its values? Well, so it's it's the principal value to me that I see emerging from the Sidewalk Labs proposal is flexibility and agility. So you saw that in the radical mixed use um, uh, building concept. Um, and and pay attention, by the way, to how often they use they use radical. Um, which I don't know if that's an engineering thing, um, but okay. Um, it's, it's a little striking from a policy perspective that you should be so free and easy with the use of the term radical. Um, and, um, you know, just in time, right? So just in time, efficient, uh, and that we know from the gig economy. And so what we know from the gig economy is that there are losers, um, there's this amplification of market rationality. There's a push to datafy everything and to turn everything into an exchange. Um, flexibility is great. Agility is great. Uh, cities are also in the business of ensuring stability, right? So they have to plan for you know 25 and 50 years. Um, uh, there's a cost to flexibility, and so. Um, you know, in thinking about this architecture with these values, um, we better be thinking about who's going to pay those costs, who's going to sort of deal with the losers in a gig economy, you know, what provisions are being made and what are the responsibilities um, of the, uh, you know, of the market participants or the architects or the, or the winners um, in this sort of, um, uh, these new markets. In other words, when Cisco says cash in, you know, who's cashing in and it does there need to be some sort of um, uh, redistribution? Um, so in terms of distribution, you know, to, uh, and specifically the distribution of public realm assets, Sidewalk Labs talks about a programmable public space. Um, parks can be used for recreation or they can be used for pop-up commerce. Um, streets can be reconfigured dynamically for bikes or for emergency vehicles, two-way traffic, one-way traffic. Um, so all of this depends on the models. Who's going to model this stuff? What is the data going to be? Um, Sidewalk Labs has a modeling company. They have a company that's doing this. Is it going to be them? Um, is it going to be a public modeling effort? Um, is that going to be subject, is there going to be accountability for that modeling? Is there going to be public input into that modeling? What gets counted, right? What are the inputs into this model? What kinds of uses are valued? 
right, this is my last slide. Because um, Anton, because I'm a law person, I have to come up with some solutions. Um, so here's my effort, um, or at least it's a gesture towards them. Um, very, a very um, uh, imperfect gesture. Um, and, and this is really intended as much as anything uh, to be, to sort of, because this is so cross-disciplinary and because it's, um, uh, there, there's so much active conversation between practice and theory, um, you know, I thought it would be useful to try to create these buckets and then kind of organize possible responses under these, in these, into these buckets um, or bundles of concern. On privatization, um, I think the most important step uh, is that it has to be policy forward and not vendor forward. And so there has to be public control over the ways in which um, these smart city implementations get made, the choices we make, consideration, um, full ventilation to the, as best we can, given that this is very uh, you know, dynamic, about what architectures we're preferring, what are the values, uh, you know, I think one of the, the, the critiques about the sidewalk labs process has been that Ontario, Canada, Toronto did not have a smart cities policy really, um, or really much of a, of a data governance policy before this process started. So it's being drafted kind of arm in arm with sidewalk labs. I don't think that's the way to do it. Um, most cities don't have uh, chief data officers, um, and many that do don't report to the mayor or the city manager or whoever has clout in the city. So that's really important, is that you don't have kind of, it's not, these decisions aren't left with the IT guy, right, or the um, even the procurement office, but that they're understood to be central to the democratic functions, the, the distributional functions, the health and welfare um, of the people in the city. Um, that obviously requires um, uh, transparency, and that ultimately will require, you know, real attention to the data and the IP issues. On the domination, um, in the domination bundle, um, I think an anti-domination agenda is really about distributing power. Uh, government contracts, especially IT contracts, um, have been very bad at that, right? So IT contracts often, IT vendors are often, you know, just New York City, for example, did this, just Microsoft just come in and do all of this for us. And, you know, that wasn't great in the IT domain, but now this is not the IT domain, right? This is everything. This has a sort of totalizing consequence. Um, and so the stakes are much higher, and you really need, I think, vendor heterogeneity uh, to avoid or limit the, am the amassing of data power. So I use this term data power advisedly. This is not a term of art. Um, and I think it's becoming, uh, it's getting a lot of attention in antitrust circles about what data power actually is and what it looks like. Um, and so I think you know, cities need to pay attention to what data power is and try to make sure that in, these, um, in the contracting out of these opportunities uh, that they're not aggrandizing um, that power or allowing that power to, um, uh, to deprive them of, um, of governance. Uh, the kind of data governance outlined in the Bass Declaration I think plays a role here, but it's, it's not enough. 
Um, and you know, I think one point I want to make here is that you know, open data policies, which sort of low-hanging fruit, and I think often kind of masquerades as a solution to power, um, they're not. Uh, open data is most useful to the companies that can make use of that data and that have the analytic um, chops and the you know servers capacity and the cloud capacity and all of that um, to make use of it. So you know it, it can do some good, but it is um, by no means a solution um, to the data power problem. Uh, I think the really the hardest issue. Um, uh, both in domination and in platformization is opt-out. Um, you know, when data and data analytics are infrastructural, you know, opting out may be like opting out of electricity or asphalt. Um, it's just not something uh, people can do. Um, and so, you know, I think, uh, and, and frankly, you know, even when you can opt out, um, there's this problem, it's a great paper by Scott Pepit um, called uh, Privacy Unraveling, and it applies the economic concept of, um, of, of unraveling to the information uh, privacy context. And so what he points out is that, you know, if you have a, a comprehensive system of surveillance or even just of, of signaling, um, and you choose not to disclose, you will be penalized because you will be understood to have to have something to hide. Um, and so uh, there is an unraveling to sort of the lowest level of or the most disclosive level. Um, and the only solution to that are paternalistic solutions, a kind of don't ask, don't tell, or a kind of Fourth Amendment you know, um, right against self-incrimination that we will not hold against you, your right to remain silent. That's a, that is a systemic decision. That is not an individual decision. And I think we need to think about sort of systemic opt-outs and protections um, so that people's choices not to participate in some of these smart city um, innovations will not be held against them. Uh, and then finally, um, I'll say one thing about the platformization, um, and I think what I'll choose to focus on here, I've already mentioned kind of the importance of non-commercial actors. Um, so in cities, we often call them anchor institutions, libraries, um, schools, public media. They play a really important function, um, and I think this is what I like about the sharing cities declaration or ethics code is that they, they um, um, sort of amplify that and revive that that notion um, in the smart city com uh, context. So um, I think we need to take anchor institutions and non-commercial actors sort of seriously and elevate them in this conversation. And I think it's been really interesting in the Sidewalk Labs context that there's been a proposal that the public libraries should be the repository of um, the data rather than this new civic trust. Um, and then on the externalities point, um, uh, I'll just use as an example, um, wait, so you see that part of the language of platformization and the city um, as platform is this tech language of demoing and testbed, testbed urbanism, right? So, um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's great to have experiments. Cities call them pilot projects, right? And to move fast and sometimes to break things, right? But 
breaking things causes externalities. Um, and I don't think cities really have a plan yet to sort of allocate costs and responsibilities for those externalities. And if you want to be a platform, um, there's got to be some way in a city, you've got to deal with that. So just to use, you know, a relatively trivial example, um, you know, what happens when the Lime scooters are broken down and left on the um, sidewalk as litter, right? Is that part of their responsibility to deal with that? Is that the city's responsibility? Um, uh, you know, platformization, um, testbed urbanism involves failure, right? So engineers, uh, you know, are, are comfortable with that. Um, uh, cities have not really planned for failure and to, uh, and to allocate the cost for that. I think I'll stop there. <laughs>